Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Dr. Deborah Enigas. I'm a practicing gynecologist and clinical content writer for Osmosis. I'm happy to welcome Dr. Anna Barbieri to Raise the Line so we can explore an issue that deserves more attention in medicine, menopause treatment and management. Dr. Barbieri is a gynecologist, integrative medicine physician, and a specialist in menopause, certified by the North American Menopause Society. She's also an assistant clinical professor in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Science at Mount Sinai Health System. Outside of her clinical and academic work, Dr. Barbieri is the founding physician of Electra Health, a next-gen women's health platform on a mission to smash the menopause taboo. I'm looking forward to learning about how Dr. Barbieri helps her patients manage menopause and about emerging treatments in the field, among other topics. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for inviting me. I'd like to start with learning a little bit more about you. What first got you interested in medicine and OBGYN? Sure. So I have a bit of a a convoluted story. Medicine was actually not my first career choice. I imagined myself as an passionate archaeologist. So prior to starting medical school, I actually ended up going on a dig with a university group. And I decided to kind of explore that field live to really see if it matched my perception of it, which it did not, although it was a fantastic experience and really one of the best experiences I've ever had. So for anyone out there, if you think a certain career is for you, I would definitely encourage you to to try it out however however you can. And then I ended up going to medical school because that was kind of my, almost like the the backup choice. And I thought that that would be interesting. I always liked kind of the intersection of science and human behavior and psychology. And I ended up pursuing it and initially thought I would end up as a medical oncologist. But after being on my OBGYN rotation, which was my last rotation of the third year with my schedule for my last year all set, really within 48 hours, I knew that that was really the field for me. So I feel very fortunate that way. It was really a great fit. And I am a major and a passionate advocate for this field. I've had my evolution within it over the years, but I would choose this field over and over again. Oh, that's amazing. I love that story. Moving forward with that, what got you interested in menopause? Sure. So, you know, I was a very, very busy OBGYN physician with teaching responsibilities and a lot of practice responsibilities. And I really loved that up to a certain point. And I, I and then I started to feel the need to maybe change things up a little bit. And I was also fortunate and, and this goes for a lot of us in this field to have the privilege of knowing our patients for quite some time. So, you know, a lot of my patients kind of got older right with me. And at somewhere in my early 40s or so, many of them kind of started coming in with what I now understand to be really perimenopause-related or menopause-related complaints. I was not really prepared to handle that as a busy generalist. 
And right at the same time, again, looking back now, I started to experience my own perimenopause. And I will tell you, and I've told this story, I mean, to me now, you know, almost a decade later, it's a shocking story that I, as a practicing OBGYN, did not recognize those symptoms in myself. And really my own hormonal change at that time started with sort of middle of the night, actually 3.11 a.m. Was, was my time, almost every night awakening with kind of unreasonable anxiety, which for me was a major change from my normally pretty laid back personality over things I had done many, many, many times before, like, you know, being on call for the next 24, 36 hours. And, and really also I started to notice certain memory changes until one day that was back in the day where we still called in medications, you know, on the phone to a pharmacy by receiving a text about somebody's complaints. I still remember driving to work, having to call in an antibiotic for a urinary tract infection for one of my patients. And I literally forgot the number of my medical license when calling in this prescription which was very unusual. I mean, we remember the number of our license, like our birth date. So I thought something was wrong. And I even pursued, you know, I, I mean, I had a neurologic evaluation and a brain MRI for this because I thought something was so wrong, which that evaluation was just fine. And it was actually my own digging into what was happening and looking at this pattern and eventually even looking at my hormone levels that led me to the re realization that was, that was just this hormonal change. So that really coincided both my own experience and the experience of my patients really kind of coincided in time. And I had always been interested in this more complex nature of hormonal medicine, of endocrinology within OBGYN, of the crossover of OBGYN into psychology and psychiatry as well. At the same time, I've always been kind of a little bit of an out-of-the-box person. So I had an interest in going beyond sort of the checkbox and cookbook medicine. So I formalized my interest in that by doing a fellowship in integrative medicine and everything kind of coalesced into this interest in really midlife women's health. So these days I focus on really gynecology and women's health for midlife and beyond, and especially paying attention to the time frame of perimenopause and menopause. And once those kind of floodgates opened, you know, there's a lot of different sort of opportunities and areas came my way, including my work in digital health and starting a practice that focuses on this. So how did you get into Electra Health? How did that start for you? Yeah, so I am. I was contacted by someone who knew me quite well, who basically said, hey, are you open to some new adventures in this field? You're so passionate about this topic, and this is how we can bring more awareness of it and better care to women seeking it really at a large scale. You know, menopause can be pretty complex and challenging. It's a very while it's a universal experience, it's also highly individual, which means it takes time to understand someone and work with them and come up with the right solution. There's a lot of education and explaining that needs to take place. And that is one of the challenges we have with delivering this type of, 
type of care within the current medical system. So I really jumped on that opportunity and decided to get involved in helping to bring education and awareness and, and eventually care to women at scale through digital technology. And it's been wonderful. It's, you know, I'm a founding physician of Electra Health. There are two co-founders who are really sort of visionary and energetic, and it's been a really wonderful addition to my clinical career. Yeah, it's a fantastic platform. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I really like it. If you don't mind going back a little bit, it really struck me how you described that you weren't sure about the symptoms you were experiencing in your 40s. And for the our audience who are, uh, there are a lot of learners here today, maybe you could define menopause a little bit or talk about the process of menopause and perimenopause. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, to this day, there's a lot of misconceptions and misunderstanding about the terminology associated with this transition. So to boil it down to some simple sort of linguistic terms, menopause is the time when a woman stops having her menstrual cycle for at least 12 months. So it's really 12 months of no periods that defines menopause. Everything after that means someone is postmenopausal or in menopause. And of course, there were exceptions to kind of the natural time of menopause. And that would cover instances of surgical menopause when we remove the ovaries of someone who is premenopausal or women who experience medically induced menopause, for example. And there are certain hormonal treatments whose goal is doing that. The time running up to that, that fits between regular and predictable hormonal changes associated with kind of the normal, predictable hormonal function and the time of menopause is perimenopause. And that can be as short as, you know, several months to a year and can be as long as a decade. So, and this is really one of those myths, right? Oh, it's it's won't happen to me for another 10 years. I mean, here I was at like 42 experiencing it, thinking that that time is really, really way off still, because we do know that the average age of that last menstrual period is around 51, 52. So perimenopause, a time of major hormonal fluctuation, which can be quite unpredictable, it kind of does come in two phases. And in that, it's a little bit like puberty. And I, I tell them my patients this all the time, right? We don't go to sleep when we're 11 years old, looking a certain way and wake up the next day, you know, with everything that's, you know, happens and all of a sudden we're 15. So Perimenopause is similar to that. The initial phase of it is typically characterized by wildly fluctuating estrogen levels, which often can be supraphysiologic, so actually even higher than what we normally experience in the typical hormonal fluctuations, and rapidly declining progesterone production. What does that look like? You know, on average, that can be that can manifest in menstrual cycles that are shorter, that are somewhat more irregular, you know, that irregularity will be about three to seven days of variability between cycles. Often there can be spotting right before a cycle. Periods can get heavier. Lots of women will complain of worse PMS, both emotional and physical. Insomnia can pop up. Weight gain can often start at that point. And we do see a rise in perimenopausal-related anxiety and sometimes depression 
depression. And then we move into kind of late perimenopause. And that's really when estrogen starts to decline faster and stay down longer. And that's when we see the more typical symptoms associated with perimenopause and menopause that we read about. So symptoms of low estrogen, hot flashes, night sweats, drier skin, dry eyes, vaginal dryness, things like that. Maybe we could address some of the treatments, some of the standard treatments for menopause and perimenopause, as well as some of the things that you're building on with more holistic care. Sure. I could talk about it, by the way, for I think a week. <laughs> and I understand that your background is in OBGYN. Also. Yes, I'm I'm actually practicing gynecology as well. Yeah. I've been focused on gynecology for more than a decade. Okay. And and just as you said, I've grown with my patients, grown older with them. And now that I'm 52, menopause is at the forefront of my daily care for patients. And yeah, yeah. So I think we've, you know, we've come of age in a in a very similar time frame. So I don't know if we'll have time. I don't know if you remember when WHI or Women's Health Initiative came out, but I remember it like people remember, you know, major, major historical events. That was such a, you know, such a watershed moment for, for us. Me too. I finished residency in 2002. So as I started clinical practice, all of my patients were dropping their hormone therapy. I finished in 03, so I was right on the heels of that. And I remember, you know, I remember being in the doctor's lounge on labor and delivery that day when the news came out. And it was, I mean, the change in clinical practice was so rapid. And, you know, those hormone prescriptions dropped by 80%. It was just a massive and immediate change. And and it really resulted in, you know, two decades of change practices and impact on care, care delivery, education, all of that. Remarkable. And I feel like the tide is just turning. Started recently, I think. We've got a lot to do, <laughs> a lot to do. Yes. I sometimes, you know, I sometimes will read things and, and basically my conclusion is that somehow we are frozen in 2002. I agree. So let's talk about some of the standard things that we use for treatment. And then I'd love to hear about your more holistic approach and the other things that you do. That would be great. So let's start, let me, let me start with the word treatment. You know, I think sometimes when we say treatment for menopause, it really implies that menopause is an illness or a disease, right? And I think that certainly does not sit well with me. Menopause, like puberty or pregnancy, it is a normal and expected time of life. And, and basically, as long as a woman lives long enough, she will go through this change. So I am wary of of really describing menopause with that menopause as illness framework. And whereas we can treat symptoms, we can also help ourselves and our patients kind of feel better through this transition, understand its implications for now and our future health and kind of use it as an opportunity to be healthier now, feel better and be healthier for the future. Having said that, there are certainly standard treatments of menopause symptoms that I tend to think about in terms of putting them in different categories. So I think certainly hormone therapy 
whether that hormone therapy is a prescription for a birth control pill or a combined contraceptive, or whether that hormone therapy really means the use of estrogen and progesterone or a progestin or even testosterone hormone therapy for certain indications. That's really kind of the traditional way of thinking about it. And I'll tell you that, you know, when I finished my training, we used to use birth control pills. Basically, it was easy. (laughs) If you were still having your period and it looked like you were going through some changes and you don't have A, B, and C contraindication, here is a birth control pill. And then if you were sort of within, if your period had stopped, especially it had been a year prior to 2002, okay, you you got hormone therapy. And after 2002, after Women's Health Initiative, those prescriptions dropped because honestly, it was just much easier to say, hormones will give you breast cancer. Let's not even go there. And, And that was it. I think where we are, things are changing slowly, but they are changing. So one of the really kind of more standard and researched and clinically useful treatments for symptoms of perimenopause and menopause is hormone therapy. It can be done very differently now. We do know that certain hormonal regimens are likely safer than what was studied in Women's Health Initiative. So I don't think any of us are using Prempro anymore, which was the combination that was used then. I think most of us are using estrogens that are transdermal, that will have a different cardiovascular profile. I use a lot of micronized progesterone. These are hormones that are considered bioidentical, although we can get into a conversation of what that term really means. For me, it just means that the hormones used are really have the same molecular structure as the hormones that the human body produces. And the research suggests that these are really, it's they're safer regimens than oral estrogen or synthetic progestin. So I would say hormone therapy, even major societies like North American Menopause Society are on board with the benefit of hormone therapy and its safety for most women, as long as they are started, preferably around the time of menopause, but not no later than 10 years into it. And I would say, you know, I have a discussion with every single one of my patients approaching this age and definitely with every symptomatic patient about this option and how that applies to them and help them understand the nuances of it. So that's one. Another bucket of kind of standard treatments that's been used for a long time, and this is because of the prevalence of mental health symptoms like anxiety, depression, insomnia, is SSRIs and SNRIs. They're going to be in the category of antidepressants. There is a bucket of them, you know, and they all vary in terms of side effects. Unfortunately, they do come with side effects, weight gain, libido, sexual dysfunction. Those are going to be the major ones. And they don't address certain other aspects of the menopausal transition, but they are still widely used. Yeah. We do have a new option with a new pharmacologic that was just approved in, I think, April of May of this year. That is called Fezolinatant. It, it goes by the brand name of Vioza. The trials were, you know, well done with excellent efficacy, but it's early days. So I only have a few patients on it. You know, there are some precautions with that. Liver function tests need to be normal. It is an expensive option as of right now, although that's 
hopefully is going to change now to very specific medications for hot flashes and night sweats, which are also based on motor symptoms. It actually targets the area of the brain that's directly related in thermoregulation. So it's another good sort of, I would call it a standard option. None of these standard options really address some of the, I'm going to call it sort of more philosophical or psychosocial or most of the more behavioral sexual health aspects of perimenopause. And that is, I think, where integrative care really, really shines here because menopause does not affect, does have a hormonal root cause, but it doesn't affect just our, you know, menstrual cycles or vaginas or doesn't just cause hot flashes. It's a it's a major change. And I certainly think that even things like community support, learning about this change, being supported by your own peers, by medical professionals that one has a relationship and trusts, counseling when indicated, self-emphasis on self-care and learning how to take care of ourselves in terms of stress management. I used to call it stress reduction, but it's just rolls off my tongue. So much easier said than done. And I, you know, we all have stress and we, we need to learn how to manage, manage it. Learning how to, how our metabolic health changes during this transition, how our nutritional needs may change. How do we manage that? What happens in our metabolic health? Do we need to be looking at our you know, parameters of glucose control, our lipids, our cardiovascular risk? Is it time to assess our genetic risks for various conditions? So really that awareness and throwing in that lifestyle change of nutrition, movement, stress management, emphasis on sleep, reassessment of life's priorities. I mean, we're, you know, like we live for a long time. This is, this is not, I certainly don't think this is a time to like, you know, put up my coat and go, you know, go knit a sweater. I mean, I would love to, I don't know how to knit, but you know, I, we have a lot to do. So I think it's, it's a beginning of a different phase. So certainly that lifestyle and, mindset piece is important. There are a few botanicals that have been studied. This is tends to be a controversial area. And I find that some people have this perception that all supplements are bad. Like whoever is recommending them, like they don't even know what they're talking about and they're dangerous and unregulated. And while it's true that not all supplements are created equal, there are a few things that have been, have quite a bit of research behind them. And there are also ways to distinguish some of the more reputable companies with better quality assurance processes and R&D from some of the bad players. And, and certainly my point here is not to advertise, you know, everybody taking 25 different supplements, but there are not everyone should or can take hormone therapy. Not everyone wants to, you know, wants to get on an SSRI or the new medication or I forgot about things like gabapentin, for example, it's another med that's used. So I, I think we do have some options here. And I certainly in my practice do have patients where I recommend, for example, magnesium 
or you may recommend a combination of magnesium and B12 or B-complex. Ashwagandha is an adaptogen that has been studied for many, many years and has hundreds of studies on it that can be used for these purposes. Soy isoflavones are, are there. Saffron is garnering more attention. So certainly, you know, helping someone develop a, a supplement program if they're interested in that or reassess what they're on. That's a big part of my practice too, because I do see a lot of people coming in and lots of different things, some of which may be questionable, some of which may down, be downward unsafe is an important aspect of it. And I think it behooves us as clinicians to know more about this because our patients are using this stuff. And I, th- I think the statistic is something like more than 50% of women in this age group are actually using supplements, vitamins, and botanicals. And many of us don't even know that. Or if patients tell us that, many of us don't know what to do with that information. Right. I agree 100%. Yeah. So what advice would you give to current and future health professionals about providing menopause care? So here is my, I would say, unpopular opinion as a menopause specialist, right? Because now we can get a this designation by the North American Menopause Society to be a, to be a certified provider. I actually think menopause education and care should really be bread and butter for everyone caring for women in the areas of primary care and endocrinology and psychiatry and certainly OBGYN. I mean, this is half the population. This is this is not an esoteric condition. This is this is really this is, you know, I feel like, you know, OBGYN that doesn't provide menopause care and is in general practice, that's like being a urologist and not knowing about the prostate. This is a given. So I am actually an advocate for really increasing widely available menopause education to medical students, certainly to residents in these in this these fields as a study probably now 10 years old, that cited that only about 20% of OBGYN residency programs had formal menopause curriculum. I mean, that's that's just doesn't help our, ourselves, our patients in, in any way. So I think it's really, we need to make it easier and more accessible. And you know, I, I think all of us in these fields should have the basic knowledge of hormone therapy, its applications, how to screen patients for as far as who is an appropriate candidate and how to counsel them about it. And I think that's going to destigmatize this area, normalize it and allow for better care. I agree. I And my last question would be, do you think our patients are well-informed or or becoming more well-informed about menopause? I think there is a a rising tide of interest in menopause, which is great. And I think it's actually being driven by our patients and some celebrities who are less afraid to talk about it. And I think it's it's kind of a double-edged sword in a way, because with that interest and with the increased access to technology and increase access to information online, you both end up with a lot of great information out there, but also some really bad information or incorrect information. So I do think that interest is rising. There is more and more information out there. I think we do need to be diligent at providing good 
evidence-based and informed information to our patients. We do need to recognize that we can go outside, the, that menopause is not a checkbox. You know, you have this option or this option. We have to work with our patients individually. It does take time and effort and, and empathy and being understanding, but it's really worth it. Yeah. I agree. And I think our health systems are recognizing it also with more attention being paid to it. And there's lots of barriers in terms of the systems that we work with, including insurance, reimbursement, you know, time per visit and, and all of that. But I think it's really the the demand of the patient, consumer demand and and kind of the way of destigmatizing this this area is is helping that. I agree. Yeah. So I have one more question, actually. I, I love your platform. I think it's, it's a great resource, even if you're not joining and becoming a member, your website has great basic information. Do you have any other recommendations for medical students or residents or even patients, good resources to go to the places to look? Yeah. So the Electra website is great. I'll represent my team here. We're very, very proud of it. We worked hard on it. It distills, it combines both conventional approaches with some of these more integrative approaches without straying into areas that are unproven or maybe dangerous. I think it's very approachable and and patients really like it. There are some other sites out there. I would caution people of really looking at sites that promote one particular solution. Some of them may have good information, but they will always push that one particular solution, whether it's a you know medication or a supplement. The North American Menopause Society, which was just renamed the Menopause Society, has a pretty decent website with education for healthcare professionals, which I think is a good resource to have, or at least the basics to start off with. And ACOG provides, is starting to provide really more and good education in this field too. Thank you. Well, I think you and I could talk about this all day. So too. I, I have some questions for you as well. But I want to just thank you so much for joining the podcast. I appreciate your time. You're very welcome. My pleasure. I'm Dr. Deborah Enigus. Thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to raise the line and strengthen the healthcare system. We're all in this together. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>